elbow of fellowship. I could uh, go on and on about uh, the joy that I had in spending a little time at the farm in Wyoming. Um, and so if you, if you uh, want to be bored by or uh, encouraged, or maybe you could be glad for me, but it was, it was gorgeous, uh, much fun, good time with my brother. But it is good uh, to be back with you. Uh, one of the things I do uh, in what I call screen time, uh, and again, I think my natural habitat is a 1999 Suburban uh, on an interstate heading towards one. It's just sort of where I feel most myself. Uh, but the joy of that is that I just listened to one uh, podcast after another uh, and really uh, felt like I was doing a lot of sermon prep. Heaven knows over the years where these things will filter out, but, uh, but there are a lot of, uh, of wonderful thinkers out there, and it was just a delight to look at the beauty of God's country uh, and, uh, and just his creation at the same time learning about uh, the insights and brilliance of uh, God's Word uh, from amazing uh, men and women. So much fun was had. Uh, we continue our work and study through uh, what it means to, uh, to lead in the church, what it means to have a community of faith that fosters healthy leadership, has a good sense of expectation of what that looks like. Because again, the world around us is always telling us what leaders look like, and they have certain measures of success, uh, certain measures of power and effectiveness. Uh, but what we know is that left to their own devices, apart from the grace of God, those human means of leadership and direction and success often don't translate into the rather counterintuitive nature of servant leadership that Jesus embodies. And so when you have in Philippians 2 uh, the very notion that, God, that Jesus sets aside all of those things that from a worldly perspective one might think would make his ministry effective. And let's be honest, until after the resurrection and his ascension, one could argue that his ministry was not terribly effective. There are big churches all over this country that are a lot bigger than any group Jesus ever got together. That in raw numbers, in effectiveness, gosh, it seems like he shouldn't have set aside all of those things because if he would have flexed a few of those at the right moment, would not more have arrived. And, and so it's this, this wrestling with the pragmatism that we see in successful work inside or outside of a religious setting and recognizing that what we're fostering and encouraging in one another and therefore eventually in leadership is something that is fairly counterintuitive to the world and has certain ways in which it's drawing people to Christ is perhaps on a different time scale or a different volume. Not that the Lord's work won't be done, uh, but that it is done in a way that perhaps looks differently. And so uh, this morning we continue looking at these uh, ideas, these truths uh, about leadership. We've talked uh, from various texts about big ideas of being able to listen, being able uh, to repent, being able to submit. And now we get into more traditional texts about elders and deacons. And so uh, Steve started us off last week in 1 Timothy, and we'll continue. But let's put seven verses in front of us. 
be dealing mostly with what's in verse 2, but we'll, we'll get a little bit of uh, context. Hear now God's word. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires the office of overseer or bishop, depending on your translation, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach or blameless, depending on your translation. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how can he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we ask again for your leading. We know that all good and perfect things come from you. And we pray that as we seek to understand your calling for leaders, your desire for us to reflect who you are in our leadership and in our community of faith, that what would be said would be useful for the building up of your people, and whatever is not true would quickly be forgotten. In Christ's name, amen. There's a certain way in which the description of biblical leadership at some point becomes sort of uh, idealistic, right? There is enough pressure from sin and brokenness that if we were to ask one another the question, what is that ideal leadership? What is the ideal ethos within a church where one feels not only that one is safe, but that my sin isn't safe, right? So we, we want leadership that makes us feel like we are able to be real, able to wrestle with who we are, but we really don't want, at least I would hope in Christ, a place where our sin is safe, that we, we use love in an unbiblical fashion that actually creates a safety for perpetuating and staying in a state of brokenness and sin. And because the desire is to see healing, inevitably our leaders should be first and foremost those who are recipients of that healing, those we know, not that they are sinless, but that they are transparent, appropriately transparent in their own growth and change. And to imagine a church like that and the hope and the joy is where I want to start because we know that EC has the gift of, of criticism, a spiritual gift of sarcasm as well. And I think I really want to protect the idea that, that at some point we would really be shooting fish in a barrel if we pointed to all of the potential weaknesses in church leadership. We've all experienced, but we also know that we have had glimpses of and men and women in our lives who have been a safe place, but not a safe place for sin. And because they had been through the difficulties of life, failure and success in the mercies of Christ, nurtured and encouraged our faith. 
And the desire here is more to encourage the expectation that that doesn't need to be unique. That the church can be full of folks like that. And therefore making our choices for leadership obvious and true and not terribly limited. So I want this morning to not be utopian, but to be a little idealistic that these things in Christ are possible and that we can have, within the biblical context, leadership that is above reproach, that lives a biblically blameless life, and that in so doing gives us a reason to live blamelessly ourselves. So first, uh, bishops uh, or, or uh, elders, uh, depending on uh, translation, and really the history of that, by the way, is the difference between words with a Jewish background, which ends up having the word elder, and those translated elder, and those which are translations uh, when Paul uses a Greek historical word, which is the time in which uh, we usually see the word bishop translated. Uh, and so it goes back and forth, and in the time, they were really focusing on the same thing. And this is clearly long before any uh, Episcopal form became a little bit more advanced and complex. And so really, bishop and elder are coming at it from two different translations, two different words, one from a Greek origin, one from a Hebrew origin, and trying to express those who are responsible for and in leadership in a servant way for their communities of faith. And so to advocate for that position, what are we looking at for Paul that means that folks are blameless? Well, in context, we've got to go to chapter 1, verse 3, and chapter 1, verse 4, because Paul is writing to Timothy as he encourages these, this young minister in how to prepare an, and, uh, a congregation and to train leadership is that there's always the pressure within the church, and this starts from the very beginning, uh, for our people to come in and to mess with what is the simple core of the gospel. The, core, the gospel is not complicated. It's just very hard. And what we usually try and do then is find teachers who can make it complicated, and when it's complicated, then it becomes less hard because in the complications, I can just say, well, it's too complicated, so I'm not going to do these things. Complication can actually be an interesting way of avoiding things that are simple but very hard truths. And not that the resurrection and glorification of Christ is a simple idea, but it is an element of faith. And it's not surprising that as Paul tries to found churches and ministries based on the transformational reality of a resurrected king who now sits enthroned and therefore has changed history itself, that we no longer live in the same world, that we live in a world that is now headed towards new creation, that the fulcrum of history changed, that it tipped at the resurrection. That up until that point, death and sin moved ahead almost unchecked. That nothing could stop it. That no leaders could stand up against it. And in Jesus, death and the powers of evil are finally defeated. That is both simple and complex. It is complex in that we wrestle with how fast 
that transition is happening. And it tempts us back towards worldly ways of power, worldly ways of pragmatism. Given that the world doesn't seem to be as ruled by Jesus as we'd like, we still need to do certain pragmatic things. These teachers come into the church in Ephesus. They begin to press old understandings of the law, and Paul fights against that vehemently. Even pushing hard on the application of the Ten Commandments and their proper role. That's what's going on in verses 8 through 11 of chapter 1. Paul going through the second table of the law and saying this is what those prohibitions are about. They're not about establishing barriers between us as Jews and them as Gentiles, which Ephesus wrestled with. It's not about establishing distance and separation. It's about moral regulation. Don't misuse the law. You can't have leaders, you can't have teachers who misuse the law. No teaching a different doctrine. Verse 3 of chapter 1. May uh, charge certain persons not to reach out to reach any different doctrine. Now that sounds like then elders are going to be very strict on doctrinal truths. That's not Paul's point. We are called to discern false doctrine which deviates from the basic understandings of the gospel. And it means not making second things first things. Because what follows, of course, is a warning against those who not only teach doctrine or focus on doctrine, but begin to get angry and divide over doctrine and use it as a way to split the church and to make Apollos followers and to make Paul followers and to make Peter followers, as Paul has to talk about in another book. Being blameless, then, in the context is not without sin. It's not whether or not there is an absence of all failure. But is there a life that can be seen as one that builds unity and life and truth in the body of Christ, or one that has fomented division, that has made secondary things primary things? that has divided the body and instead of giving rest to God's people, stir them up to division and separation. It is interesting to see how Paul stresses anger as an inhibitor to standing for office. I don't know that we have much hope or as much hope as we could in seeing anger addressed by the gospel. Too often, one hears that anger is something uncontrollable within me, that there have been circumstances or events or things you've done to me that cause anger to simply be a part of my life. And therefore, everyone around me must adapt 
to something that can't be controlled. The hope of the gospel is that even our anger can be addressed. Those wounds healed. Those false positions of power or superiority that give me a sense of disdain and anger for those who are not like me can be removed. Anger and quarreling are addressed by Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. And if you've got a Bible, I encourage you to turn. Jesus says this, You have heard that it was said of those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable of judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable of judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool be liable the fires of hell. Jesus apparently is concerned that anger not go unchecked, that it has reverberations interpersonally for the community and eternally, and that for elders, as for all the members of the church, but certainly as elders, Anger cannot be a hallmark of their life. Anger is also not the hallmark of a life lived openly. Usually, to maintain anger or to allow anger to flourish there are parts of my life that I must keep not only from God, but from those around me, from those closest to me. There can be no transparency. There can be no openness. There can be no being known. Because what anger says is that there are parts of my life you can't go to. You can't go there, God. You can't go there, friend. You can't go there, loved one. For whatever reason, that place of pain and hurt and fear and anxiety that manifests itself in the defensive act of anger closes me off. To be blameless, I cannot be closed off. I cannot be closed off before God because I need to repent and I need His healing. I can't be closed off to my brothers and sisters because they're called to speak into my life. Blamelessness is easy to fake if nobody knows you and you define things really limited. Don't dance, don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, don't go with girls that do. If I do that, I can be blameless. I've kind of reduced the law. I could present myself that way, and I could be angry and controlling, domineering. But we could make excuses for those things because I'm not breaking these blameless laws over here. It is really that stressful, and that stressful is the wrong word. Strenuous is the word I was looking for. I knew it was in that family of words. To be a leader is to be transparent, is to be open, is to not harbor that anger. 
is to not harbor division. It is a high calling. It is a difficult calling. It is really difficult if we expect that our leaders are the only ones in the room who are like that. That's why sometimes we don't have a lot of leaders within the church broadly. These are not unique qualities to the elder, but they are ones that are in maturing and flourishing in such a way that we recognize these are folks living honestly before the Lord. Not perfectly. Blameless, again, is not perfection. Think of the other times in Scripture where people have been declared blameless, who three chapters before were doing really bad things. Abraham was blameless. Job didn't sin in all that he did. Well, that didn't mean that Job had never sinned. The Bible talks about blameless. It isn't talking necessarily about sinlessness. It is talking about not harboring, protecting, and cultivating sin within our lives. But being open before the Lord and one another in confession, transparency, and in unity. That is why a bishop must be above reproach or blameless. That is what it looks like. So how does one do that? Well, I think that's verse 1, uh, ch- sorry, chapter 5. Oh, for Pete's sakes, dyslexia. Chapter 1, verse 5. Chapter 1, verse 5. Look at Ephesians, cha- Ephesians, right? That's where I am. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. What is Paul's motivation for this high calling? Is it, is it well, here's what it is. It's love. The aim of our charge is love. That issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Paul's encouragement to Timothy is one to be motivated out of love. So we don't live blamelessly so we can judge those who aren't blameless. The motivation is nothing but love. How do we cultivate a community of love in which faith is encouraged? In which consciences can be clear. For Paul, it's always an ethic of love. When Paul drives home hard and difficult points, it's because he loves people enough to tell them the truth and the way in which they're living will rob them of who they are in Christ. Paul's heart breaks for Corinth and for Galatia, even as he comes in very firm pastoral ways. It doesn't mean that your elders won't confront sin, but is it in the love of Christ. The love of God and the love of the other. One leads blamelessly when one's love, first of all, for God is growing. John 14, 15. Matthew 28. Jesus promises that He'll never leave us. He won't leave the disciples Again, a lot of the uh, videos, uh, not videos, podcasts I was listening to talked about uh, this division we feel and how much our culture has told us that Jesus is in some faraway place called heaven and we don't know how many days it may get and clearly it takes a long time for prayer requests to get in because the answers certainly don't come fast and so we should really figure out how to get fiber optic cable up there so that we can get you know, quicker return time. But the reality is Jesus didn't go up and away someplace. He went into 
the throne room of grace. He went into the presence of God. And the notion that that is someplace far away does not come from the Bible. And the whole point of worship and the whole point of the temple, of course, was a place where heaven and earth overlap, where you actually enter heaven. This was very difficult prior to the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's why we read about the difficulties of entering the temple for regular people. And that's why it is such an amazing thing for a Jewish person to hear that the very shade, the very uh, tapestry that separated the holy place from the Holy of Holies was ripped and everybody now metaphorically and really enters into the throne room of grace. Jesus is not far away. He is in the throne room of grace. And when we come together, wherever two or more are gathered, that place is the place where God dwells with His people. He is not far away. And that intimacy... What if in my own psychology, because I'd like... Well, I like a lot of my sins. They're pretty fun. And so what if it's handy for Jesus to be in a couple rooms over? And that occasionally I can go to Him, but I can live somewhat autonomously. Is there a sense in which that part of what we're wrestling with is our own submission to the love of God in acknowledging and living in the reality that He is with me all the time? Not in a creepy way, but in a best friend and encouraging and a lean on and a weep with and a rejoice with friend. And that what love of God is about is a love of a relationship with a real human being, not an abstract spiritual notion of goodness. What if He's here with me, encouraging and loving me, and doesn't that usually make my love more deeper and real. We know that the notion is that absence makes the heart grow fonder, but there's a certain limit to that. The reality is that regular intimacy with my children and checking in with them and knowing them continues to build that relationship. My regular friendships require regular maintenance. Yes, in certain ways I can talk to somebody at a surface level that I haven't talked to for a long time. And we can pick up our surface friendships pretty easily. But the heart-changing aspects don't pick up that quickly. My marriage is strengthened when we are in regular communion with one another in such a way that we are known. And that builds our love. Not just an emotional love, but a love that transforms and builds. Do we have that sense that God is with me and that I'm building an intimate relationship with the divine that is therefore allowing me the real resources to love others well? We know that all of the commandments boil down to two, love God and love neighbor. We know that God has already loved us and therefore it is growing in our love for him and in so doing, we love like He does. We love the other. One flows from the other. When I have been loved by, I can love. We live blamelessly when we cultivate our love for God. It makes less room for sin. It makes less room for anger. A love of God makes my petty frustrations seem as petty as they really are. 
As long as my love of self allows me to foster anger, frustration, a need to be right doctrinally, a need to be right powerfully, as long as I focus on that, my anger grows. But when I relish the love and presence of God, it gives a context for all of those things that come up within me that make me unfit to be a leader of God's people, to be a servant of God's people, because the love of other is about servant leadership. You can't have elders who love to be served. You have to have elders who love to serve, who are known as servants, as those who care. Hold faith and a good conscience. That's 119. And again, the encouragement here is that uh, we need one another. As Paul encourages Timothy, the holding his faith and a good conscience by rejecting what makes a shipwreck of other people's faith. But how will I know? I need Paul. Timothy needed Paul. This is not a letter on how you can become an independent leader. This fundamentally reveals the need for leaders to be led and to be encouraged in their faith. Jesus submitted it to himself in the garden. What Hebrews calls Jesus learning through what he suffered. He submitted as a leader to learning. The only context for that is love. So why? Why be blameless? Time flies. Uh, Jesus again in Matthew 5.16 because our light is called to shine before men that they may see our good works and praise our Father in heaven. You can't shine the light if you're opaque. There has to be, in that sense, an ability to reflect, to be seen through, so that the only thing that is seen is Christ himself, because we give glory to God the Father. That your light might shine before people. That the good works that are characteristics of God himself the good gift and good work doer, that the source of that goodness might be praised. That's why we do it. We do it so that God can get the glory. We can do it so that people may see the light of who God really is. This is, again, the last and final challenge of leadership is that we don't reflect our own glory and our own strength and our own ability. The calling is actually to allow the glory of God to pass through us that you might see something actually useful. The transcendent goodness of God himself. Open doors at CVP, as we've already unpacked a little bit, is as much about transparency as it is just simply being a welcoming church, which is often not simple. But that idea is not enough. Just having a good coffee time, just having a good handshake when it's medically appropriate, uh, is 
nice. But really what people will see in an openness, the doors that are truly open, are where people's lives are open and being transformed. That is the most welcoming thing we can give to anyone, is a community that is being transformed and is open to one another and open to the work of the Lord. What does that look like for us to live with our doors open, knowing that our hearts are cared for, that our hands are strengthened, and therefore our lives can be open? That's the encouragement, to be blameless, to be those who can and do reflect the one who is blameless, where that really glory comes from, because that in the end is what we're doing. Not creating a blamelessness, not manufacturing a uh, way in which we are above reproach, but because we are robed in the one who was above and is above reproach, the one who is blameless, you can't go wrong. You can go awful wrong when you reflect your own. We want to be a community. We want leaders who as brokenly and humbly and confessionally as possible simply desire to reflect the blamelessness of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that that great promise that we too can be blameless in you would be what we offer one another and what we offer a watching world. Lord, that we become blameless, we become transparent, we become safe in you because you loved us. We ask, Lord, that we would delight in that truth. In Christ's name, amen.